You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. So since our last application Sunday when we wrapped up our minor prophets, we've gone through Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and I want to refresh our memory a little bit about those sermons today uh, before we look at some uh, key points of application. And um, the application points this week are going to be a little bit more intentional than maybe we normally get into and a little bit more time sensitive. And so we'll get to those um, towards the very end. You'll remember when we first started our study in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about why we were even studying this, this section, right? I told you, one, this is an extremely familiar section of Scripture, not just to believers, not just to Christians, but also to unbelievers, right? Like this is a section of Scripture that it's not uncommon to find unbelievers quoting from. Uh, usually in a, in a way to attack the church or to downgrade the church or to um, highlight the church's failures. Um, but it's a passage of Scripture that's very familiar. And I think it's important for us as believers, as Christians, to know what Jesus meant by some of the things that he said. We need to rightly interpret that, uh, realizing that there's going to be opportunities for us to talk about these passages of Scripture potentially with lost family and friends. Again, because it's not uncommon to hear them reference Uh, some of these passages. But coming out of our study in the Minor Prophets, where we talked heavily about what it looks like to love God, to image God, to love others, I told you that this section in the New Testament gives us some real practical application for how to carry that out, okay? And so we looked uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, uh, at the Beatitudes, and I want to read that for us again. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we tied that into our minor prophet study that this is how the minor prophets taught, this is how the minor prophets sought to live, and this is how the minor prophets were treated as well, right? And so as we seek to align ourselves with their teaching the New Testament teaching, we seek to live these things out, we should expect to be treated in similar ways as Jesus promises will take place. In this section, we talked about how the Sermon on the Mount gives us clarity or greater clarity about how to walk humbly, show intentional kindness, and do what is right in the face of persecution by challenging us to examine our hearts as we evaluate our outward actions. And so we talked about how one of the big things that we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is far more concerned about our heart condition than just simply our outward actions, right? That um, the Pharisees had made a living off of highlighting this outward conformity to a certain standard of living, but it really neglected the inward aspect of things. And so Jesus shows up on the scene to really draw our attention back to what it looks like to be mindful of our heart condition. We talked about how we need the gospel every day, even as believers who have come to Christ already. Um, that we need to be regularly reminding ourselves that in and of ourselves, we don't possess anything valuable spiritually to God that would earn our acceptance before him. He talks about how we really need to remain in a state of grieving and mourning over our sins, that each day we keep running to Jesus. We keep turning to him for our salvation, right? Like we keep coming back to the fact that he is our salvation. He, Jesus, is the one who has earned righteousness for us. Um, not anything that we have done to earn his grace or mercy. And then when we continually remind ourselves of that, that we enjoy God's grace, grace upon grace that we've sung about today, that we then become channels of that in our interaction with others, right? We talked about needing to be channels of mercy and purity and peace. These are things that Jesus highlights here when he talks about the type of people that we are to be Um, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, uh, people who are known for extending grace and mercy to others, particularly those who don't deserve it, right? People who are known for their purity in how they interact and treat one another. 
He builds off of that idea when we get into later in this chapter um, the idea of adultery and divorce and our interaction with relationships, right? But we're to be known as people who are of pure of heart, people who are peacemakers, people who enjoy peace with their creator and now seek to build off of that in their interaction with other people. We talked about being people who must do right, correct wrong, and expect ungratefulness for it. Right, he talks about here at the end of this section um, that we are to be uh, individuals who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? Peter talks about this later in his epistles, that we, we, don't, we don't become people who are persecuted for doing the wrong thing. There's no glory. There's no uh, blessedness in that. Right? Instead, we're, we're, we're told that when we do the right thing and endure persecution, we are modeling what our Savior did. Right? That our Savior came and lived correctly, lived rightly, lived obediently, and endured persecution for it. And so we see, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And so we should be the type of people who are first known for doing right, people who are known for correcting wrong, because that's certainly where Jesus became an antagonistic individual for the culture, right? Not only does he show up doing the right thing, but he shows up correcting other people's behavior. He shows up redirecting people where they have missed God's mark, right? Where they have fallen short of his glory. And so we have to be individuals who are willing to not only do the right thing, uh, but also correct the wrongs that we see around us. It's where we tied in that idea of being salt and light, right? That we bring charity to our environment, but we also bring clarity to it as well. That we do the right thing, but then we're also very clear about why we are doing the right thing. That we're submitted to our king who's called us to live this way. And so we're known as people who do the right thing. We're known as people who correct wrong around us. And then we expect ungratefulness for it. We expect to be mistreated. We expect to be persecuted. We expect to be reviled, right? We expect to be underappreciated for it. This is where we've challenged uh, our kids who are in the school systems, right? Where they see wrongs happening around them. They see wrong behavior. They see uh, people, uh, friends and, and, and others doing the wrong thing that we want. We want to be a church that is producing kids, producing students who are willing to go into these environments and set a different type of standard, Right? A standard that says, this is what it looks like to do the right thing, and I'm going to stand for the right thing, and when I see the wrong thing happening, I'm going to address it. I'm going to seek to correct it. I'm going to seek to fix it, even if it means being made fun of, even if it means enduring some level of persecution for what it looks like to be persecuted as a 13 to an 18-year-old, right? to, to be willing to be known as this type of person. Because our long-term desire is for them to be known as these type of people when they get into the workplace, when they get into the home, when they get into their own neighborhood, when they get into their own environments, for them to be salt and to be known as light. And so our application from this section was, you know, simply a question of, are you known in this way? Are you known as an individual who expresses a need for the gospel every day? Someone who walks in humility, recognizing that there is nothing to boast about spiritually, there's all the reason to be running to Christ on a daily basis. Are you known as an individual who's a channel of mercy and purity and peace? One who does the right thing, seeks to correct wrong, and is okay and content when ungratefulness is expressed for it. That brought us into Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In talking about what it means to be salt and light, we said as Christians, we're called to make our environments better through the charity we provide while also providing clarity to our environments with the light we shine, with all being done for the purpose of seeing God glorified, right? So we talked about being a salt and being a, a light source in our environments, that it means that we step into these environments, whether it's our home, our workplace, our neighborhood, 
the hobbies and, and cultures that we have outside of those realms because of things that maybe our kids are involved in, right? In all those environments, we look to be the type of people who make those environments better, right? The ways that we treat people, the ways that we serve people, that, we, that we're like salt in those environments, right? That we make it better. Just like salt makes food better, we make environments better. But not simply for our own glory, right? Like we don't, we don't step into these environments and try to be these type of people that would then result in heaps of praise coming our way. Instead, we, we also step into these environments as a, as a light source, um, a light that shines people to Jesus so that our good works result in others giving our Father glory, not ourselves. This certainly ties into what we saw in Adam McLeod's sermon in chapter 6, right? That we don't do things, we don't give, we don't fast, we don't pray so that we get the praise for it, right? We're not doing things for show or for our own praise and glory. Instead, we do these type of things, we live this type of way so that others give glory to our Father who is in heaven, I think it's significant to be reminded here that our, our identity has been given to us by our Father, right? Jesus declares us to be salt and light. And there's an urgency to it because we've talked about the fact that while God doesn't need us, he has created a plan for how the gospel goes forth that requires us to be a part of it, right? He's required us to be the messengers who are the salt, who are the light, to draw people to him. So therefore, we're to make our environments better with the charity that we bring to them. We deter evil. We seek to infuse or enhance good into our environments, right? We want to be these type of people, people who are known for making environments better. Um, as, at Trinity, when I'm doing family interviews, I'm always looking for people, families, students that are going to come in and contribute to our culture, not be a detractor for it, right? Like we're not looking for situations where our culture would be altered or changed by accepting a group of people. Now there's kids that we bring in and we know that uh, there's going to be an element of ministry that's required on our part to serve them, to serve their family, right? We try to keep those situations to a minimum though, because we know that the bulk of our families there are expecting a certain type of culture. Um, I always uh, am extremely encouraged when I see an application come across my desk where I know the individual works at um, the support center for Chick-fil-A. Because the families, the experience that I've had at Trinity, and we have a ton of Chick-fil-A families there, is that they make our environment better. The family makes the environment better. The kids typically make the environment better. There's an agreement between us and them that, that we're on the same page. And so I I get very excited about families that work at Chick-fil-A because it typically means a certain type of family, a certain type of culture that will be added to by bringing them to our school, right? We want to be that type of uh, family unit, that type of individual in the eyes of others when it comes to our environments that we're currently in. That, hey, if if Adam's going to be there, if Adam's going to be a part of that, it's going to be better because of the attitude and the culture that he seeks to create by being a part of it, right? And so the things that we talk about in the rest of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those type of things, when we're living those type of things out, it makes us salt and light. It makes us the type of people who make environments better, right? The type of people who are peacemakers, the type of people who do bring mercy to the table, uh, the type of people who are known for keeping their word, right? And so we're told to be these type of people, salt and light, to make our environments clearer with the clarity that we bring to them. That we're able to illuminate people about why we do what we do. And to help them see what's coming in the future. Right? Tyson in his message talked about the earthly treasures versus the heavenly treasures. Are we making our investments here for the now or for there in the future? Right? We want to be people who live a certain way, do things a certain way, but to bring the light piece to it as to the why. Why do you do it this way? Why are you this type of person? You don't seem to desire the praise. You don't seem to desire the glory. Who should we be giving that to? Right? For us to be the type of people who are constantly pointing people to our Heavenly Father who works in us and through us. 
who gives us the power to work out our salvation this way. But the question for us is, are we, remember we talked about salt doesn't lose its saltiness per se by being changed, it simply becomes diluted, right? Something becomes less salty if it's diluted with other substances. And this is certainly a message that we see in scripture that we as Christians can't be entangled so in the things of this world that we lose our ability to be salty. If we're diluted with the things of this world, then we do lose our saltiness. If we um, don't bring clarity to why we do what we do, we're like a hidden light, right? We're, we're so hidden in that we don't vocalize who we are and why we do what we do. There is no ability to give God the glory for it because there's no redirection for it, right? People don't know if they don't hear it from us as to why we do what we do. That leads us into Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We said that Jesus came to fulfill the law's requirements and will one day fulfill all of God's promises in the Old Testament. But in the meantime, he has called us to obey him both outwardly and inwardly with a heart of love. The Pharisees and the scribes would have criticized Jesus when he showed up, believing that he was changing things in a way to the detriment of the Old Testament. But what we saw this week when we looked at this sermon is that Jesus came to reinforce what God says, but to also minimize what man was saying, right? This is where we talked about uh, there's two sides that we want to avoid, one being the side of liberalism, where we minimize God's standards, right? We redefine God's standards, allowing us to live more freely than he intended for us to live. We, we go underneath Scripture. We minimize Scripture. We, we reduce Scripture. We, we remove things from Scripture, potentially. But the other side is the legalistic side, where we add to Scripture. We go above the scriptural line and start adding things to it, requiring things to it that, that Jesus never said. And that's what he's addressing specifically here, is that they had added to what the Old Testament had said, And now we're frustrated that Jesus was trying to take those things away. Jesus says, don't be content with outward conformity alone. Instead, he wants us to keep fighting for inward conformity as well, to be better than the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. We said that these weren't, this wasn't Jesus saying, hey, think of the best of the best, and then you have to be better than that, right? He's saying, think of the people who look great on the outside, but you know are off on the inside. He says, look, you've got to be different. Being outwardly conformed to the law isn't sufficient. It's not what he desires. He also doesn't want us to relax the seriousness of his commands or neglect the weightier matters. We see that the Pharisees are guilty of both. And then he specifically applies it to anger. He says in verse 21, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So he takes all that he's saying there about the law and begins to apply it specifically to commands that were important to them, commands that they thought they understood, right? So he says, you've heard that it said, If you murder, you're liable to judgment. But he helps them to see uh, a a deeper aspect to this law here, right? That what Jesus really desires, what God really desires is that our hearts would be 
expressing a, an attitude of love and kindness towards others and, and not um, an attitude of attack where we, where we tear others down with our words even, right? Jesus says, look, obviously murder is an issue, something that, that, that my people should never be tied to, but he backs it up even further and says, but I don't want you even tied to being unreconciled to, to each other. I don't want you to be okay with the fact that you're angry or somebody's angry with you, but as long as it doesn't lead to murder, then you're okay. Instead, he says, I want you to attack those emotions. I want you to deal with those emotions before, before your emotions get the better of you, basically. Right? Like, don't let your anger continue to harbor inside of you to where you wake up one day and realize the only thing left for me now is to, to seek revenge and to seek physical action towards somebody that may lead to murder. Right? He says, I want, you to, I want you to deal with this well before it ever gets to that point. Right? He says, I want you to go, I want you to go seek that individual out. Even if you're at a worship service and, and, the, and the Lord prompts you about somebody who you're not right with, leave it. Leave church early, right? Leave your gift at the altar. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And this is if your brother has something against you. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Don't go to court. Don't try to let a judge settle it. Don't let it escalate. Instead, deal with it quickly. It's a picture of what he means by exceeding righteousness. Right? Don't just be content to look at the Ten Commandments and say, well, I've never done this, I've never done this, I've never done this. But you realize that your heart, your heart is deceptively wicked. No, you haven't murdered anybody, but man, you do a great job of, of making people angry and you hold on to anger and there's no reconciliation. Instead, you're to be a peacemaker, right? You're to be one who is a channel of mercy, a channel of peace. So our question, our application question from that week was, is there anyone you need to reconcile with? who either you are angry with or is angry with you? Is there anybody that you need to reconcile with? And I would continue to ask that question because you, you haven't been a doer of the word if you're continuing to sit on a situation like that. The reason we have application Sundays, and for those of you that have never been to an application Sunday, normally it's a lot more fanfare with our breakfast so normally we, we'd all eat like a grand breakfast together and have extended fellowship before church, which was one of the reasons that we started this was to have more intentional time together versus people showing up right when we're starting, having to leave right when we're done and, and missing each other in the midst of gathering. And so we tried to carve out time where we could gather together, fellowship and have extended conversation. Not doing that right now, obviously, with the health concerns. Um, but one of the other pieces is the, is the specific application. We don't want to move forward into more sermons until we've done something with the things that we've heard, right? And so this is continually something that I want to keep at the forefront of your mind here as we go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If there's somebody that you need to reconcile with, somebody that you're angry with, particularly if it's somebody who doesn't even know that you're angry with them, right? They can't come and, and, and initiate the reconciliation because they don't even know there's something to reconcile with. We have to deal with those things. Jesus says to seek these people out, to fix it, to be a peacemaker. That brought us to verse 27 through 37. You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you, be, what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus calls Christians to be people known for commitment, specifically when it comes to fighting sin and fostering relationships. 
so that others have confidence in our reliability to do what we say with pure intentions. Again, this is the type of person we're to be known as, an individual who is committed, committed to fighting sin, committed to fostering healthy relationships, committed to doing what they say they're going to do, being people who can be counted upon with their word. I told you when we, when we had this sermon that we're, we're moving, we're continually moving into a culture where adultery is minimized, right? At the time when Jesus is talking, they still realized that adultery was wrong and shouldn't be committed. What they were trying to do was to find workarounds for that, right? Well, we're not carrying out the act, so we're okay to dwell upon it with our thoughts. We're we're not going to engage in the act until we have a formal divorce process, which allows us to legally separate from our wife so that we can eventually do what we want to do, right? The whole system was, we know adultery is wrong. We live in a day and age now where that's becoming less and less accepted that adultery is wrong and far more accepted that it's just part of living in today's day and age, right? And so it does serve as a good reminder to us to not lose sight of the fact that adultery is wrong and that it can be committed in ways that we sometimes try to justify, right? In this case here, they're justifying sin by saying, well, I'm not carrying out the act. It's simply something that I'm keeping in private with my thoughts, or I'm going through this legal separation process so that I can do what I want to do, but do it legally. And Jesus is saying, look, in both cases, you're committing adultery, You may look again at the list of Ten Commandments and say, I've never murdered and I've never committed adultery. But Jesus says, erase those check marks because you have done this and you have done this because you're doing this, which is in an essence the same thing, right? Be a person who's known for a strong desire for purity. Be a person who's known for a strong desire for purity. What Jesus is saying here is, Don't trust yourself when it comes to lust. Be willing to take extreme measures if necessary to remain pure. Now, this would be a great example of where there are things that we as individuals may do to preserve our purity that would become legalistic if we then tried to impose that upon other people. Think about that for just a second. Jesus is saying here, Take extreme measures to ensure your purity. Take extreme measures to protect yourself as an individual to not engage in lustful activity. Don't trust yourself. Put put measures in place to protect yourself. But going back to what were the Pharisees guilty of? They were guilty of building a system to make sure that they didn't break God's law but then expected everybody to follow their individual system. And this is where we can become very disunified in a church where if this family's choosing to live life this way and has biblical justification for this is why we do what we do, it becomes very dangerous if we then view other people through that lens and expect them to do it the exact same way as us. Right? There's nothing in Scripture that would lay out specifically some of the things that we have to build into our family life, right? We're going to make decisions about what our kids can and can't do based off principles that we see in Scripture, and we ought to do those things. But I think we have to be careful that we don't then expect others to do it exactly how we're doing it, or else then we become guilty of the Pharisees. Right? We don't want to add to Scripture. We don't want to go above the scriptural line. But in some ways, Jesus says, look, take extreme measures to obey me. So we do have to mesh out, like, like flesh out, like what are we going to do in order to remain pure? Well, there's going to be certain TV shows that maybe I don't watch because I know it's going to create lustful thoughts for me. But it would be wrong for me to then hear you talking about that TV show and be like, mm, that guy, what a lustful dude, Right? Like, like that, that's not fair for me to build protective measures into my life and then expect you to follow it to a T based on what I'm doing. Instead, I would expect to be able to have a conversation with you and say, hey, here's some things that I'm doing to protect myself. What are some things that you're doing? 
right? And that may look diff- totally different than what I'm doing based off of an individual's perception about their own weaknesses, their own struggles, and how they fight against those things. The important thing for us to hear in this section is that we are to be people who are known for a strong desire for purity. We strive for that individually. It's also a good reminder to us that divorce should be the radical exception versus an accepted norm. And again, we are moving into a day and age where that is becoming less and less true, right? Where divorce is far more common. Man, every year at Trinity, every year at Trinity, we have two, three, four kids every year where one of the parents emails and says, hey, I want to let you know, mom and dad are going through a divorce. Please keep an eye on my kid because it's going to be hard for them over the next several weeks and months, right? It's becoming far more common, far more common for this to be accepted. And Jesus says, look, there are grounds for it, but they had gone well above those grounds and were simply doing it out of a selfish intent to ultimately carry out their fleshly desires. We need to be reminded that it's a radical exception versus an accepted norm. And then lastly, be a reliable, honest person that can be counted upon. This section on oaths, remember we said they were trying to highlight that if you swear to God, you have to keep it. But if you swear to anything else, there's a loophole to get out of it. Right? And Jesus says, look, you should just be known as an individual that if you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it regardless of you swearing on something. Right? You shouldn't have to add this extra piece to solidify that you can really trust me this time because your word's not normally good enough for that. He says, I want a people group that can be known for doing what they say they're going to do or not doing what they say they're not going to do. To be a reliable, honest person. I told you from this section that we need to be challenged about whether our current sexual path reflects a path towards heaven, right? The ways that we're treating our fleshly desires, does it reflect what scripture says a Christian looks like on his way to heaven? That we are living out our faith in such a way where it is reflected in this area. Next, we saw in Matthew 28, verses 5, Matthew 5, 28, verses 38, Sorry, 38 versus 48. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forced you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We said that by loving our enemies versus retaliating against them, we separate ourselves from the world and prove that God is our father by acting or imaging him. It's clear from this section of scripture that we're never to seek revenge against those who do us wrong. We don't don't have the prerogative to do that. And I told you, this is one of those sections where I think as Christians, we are prone to live contrary to this more than some of these other sections, right? That, That sometimes we are more prone to think that there are times where it's appropriate to carry out some form of retaliation in, in the name of justice, maybe, in the name of doing what's right or making sure that what's right is done. But instead, Jesus says, don't be concerned about right being done to you. You be concerned about doing the right thing. And when those who mistreat you, right, when, the, when those who mistreat you are doing these type of things, instead of retaliating, we're to serve them. The eye for the eye, the tooth for a tooth. Again, that's a section that lost people will quote at times. That's a legal, that's a legal concept from the Old Testament. It was meant to protect an individual from doing something and then a family demanding that more or excessive treatment be done to that individual as a form of retaliation. Instead, the courts were told, hey, make sure that the response is appropriate. Right? When things come to the court system, somebody's done wrong, make sure that the response 
matches what has been done. It was never meant to be something that individuals embraced, that an individual could say, oh, you did this to me, then I get to do this to you. And we talked about rarely do we do that, right? Rarely does an individual come into my office at Trinity and say, hey, this student pushed me, and so I pushed them back with the exact same force that they pushed me with, right? Most of the time, you get into the story, it's this person bumped into me with their shoulder in the hallway. I think they did it on purpose and didn't like it, so I shoved them into a locker, right? Rarely do we carry out eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? Far more, we are the excessive treatment. And that's exactly why Jesus said eye for eye, tooth for tooth in the Old Testament and made the legal system be such where impartial people were meant to carry out responses in a way that were appropriate. He says to us as individuals, you respond differently. You respond with love and service. In fact, you'd be willing to go the extra mile if necessary to do right to those who do wrong to you. We're called to pray and serve those who mistreat us. I told you that the reality of this is that we're to pray in such a way that justice gets carried out on Jesus on the cross for our enemies and not on them. Right? We, we, we have a great hope that when Jesus comes back, he'll set all wrong things right. But as Christians, we're to pray that part of him setting all things right is to take an individual who is our enemy and make them our friend because they become reconciled to God and therefore can be reconciled to us appropriately because what they deserved gets dealt with on the cross, right? And God's wrath doesn't have to come upon them. So our application question is, who in your life least deserves your love and how can you show it to them? Who in your life least deserves your love and how can you show it to them? We then moved into Matthew 6, 7, or Matthew chapter 6, three sermons there that Adam McLeod, Tyson, and um, Marcus taught. And, and if you haven't had a, if you weren't here, haven't had a chance to listen to those sermons, let me encourage you to go back and, and listen to those on the podcast. Those guys did a great job in my time of absence of bringing you the word and doing a great justice to this text. Matthew chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he's just spent a good bit of time talking about what it looks like to live righteously. <coughs> and then to make sure that we don't start living that way in such a way where we expect praise for it, he says, look, don't do these things before people to be seen by them. It says verse 2, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We said, or Adam's summary sentence from that week, it's tempting to seek others' praise even in the midst of our outward worship and obedience. But Jesus warns that our worship should be centered on God and flow from a desire to honor him. One of the things that really stood out to me from Adam's sermon is the concept that he shared where he said that when we're tempted to show 
we should hide. And when we're tempted to hide, we should show. This is a very biblical principle that we see throughout the New Testament. When we're tempted to, to show, right? We, we want to be known. We want to be seen. We want to, to show what we've done. That's when we need to be intentional to hide that aspect, right? To, to, to minimize ourselves so that he can increase, right? But when we're tempted to hide, that's when we need to show, right? When we're tempted to hide our faith, we need to be a light, not to be hidden under a bushel, Right? Show your faith. When we're tempted to hide our sin, we need to show it. We need to bring it to the light. We need to confess it to each other. We need to seek reconciliation with each other, right? Not hide it, not harbor it, but to bring it to the light, right? So when we're tempted to hide, we show. When we're tempted to show, we hide it. Adam then talked about the value, that we need to value things properly. See the reward with God as better than any reward that could come from man. All right, he talked about the, the pawn shop analogy, where you make a living as a pawn shop operator by knowing the true value of things, right? Somebody brings something into you, you need to know if it's fake or if it's genuine, because if you overpay for something fake, you're going to lose money off of it. You won't be able to turn around and sell it, right? You love it when somebody comes in and undervalues something that you know is valuable, right? You buy it off their asking price, and then you can make a lot of money off of it. That individual knows the value of things. And Jesus is challenging us to know the value of things as well, to know what's valuable, man's praise or God's reward. He keeps coming back to the fact that if we will hide these aspects, hide the aspects of us trying to live righteously, that our reward will be great with our Heavenly Father. We must avoid doing spiritual things in order to be seen by others. The other analogy that he had that I think really resonated with me was whether we need the crowd noise to live obediently. Right? He used the illustration of the, the sports realm right now where sports arenas are having to give the image of fans in the stands. They're having to pump in crowd noise because these guys don't know how to perform at a high level without it. Right? If the fan's not there to cheer, if the music and the noise isn't there to be heard, then it's like a practice. I've told you before as a head coach for football, I've seen our boys play on a, like a Tuesday afternoon, right, after school when there are no fans in the stands, there is no glory to be had, and you're just expected to play well from a practice standpoint. You don't always get their best performance. There's something magical when you get to a Friday night, you turn the lights on, you pack the stands out, and the roar of the crowd oftentimes will elevate the performance of an individual. What we want to be are the type of individuals who can live obediently, right? Do the right thing, whether we're being noticed or not for it. But we're conditioned the other way, right? Most of us, most of us that have jobs outside the home where we answer to a boss, like we, we need affirmation from that boss to spur us on sometimes, right? Like I just want to know that I'm doing the right thing. I just want to know that, that I'm being noticed, that my hard work is, is being appreciated. And when we get that, right, when our boss sits us down and gives us some type of affirmation that says, hey, I noticed what you're doing, what does it typically do? I mean, it really spurs us on. We have to counter that, right? It's not to say that that shouldn't encourage us, but we need to be the individuals that will continue to press on, continue to do the right thing, whether we're affirmed or not by somebody. Right? That we value the reward that comes from God versus the praise of man. We don't want to be the people that need crowd noise to live obediently. Tyson taught us about treasures and masters. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot deserve God and money. Oh, sorry, the application from Adam's section. Um, Sorry, this is Tyson's section. Tyson's summary sentence was, hold everything earthly with a loose hand, but grasp eternal things with a death-like grip. Hold everything earthly with a loose hand, 
but grasp eternal things with a death-like grip. Tyson talked about how our investments during this life reflect where our heart is focused. Are we investing in earthly things or eternal things? I love how he pointed out the, the idea of what a bad eye means. Right? He showed us from other passages that it's really tied to our stinginess, our lack of generosity, which ties in perfectly with the context of what's going on here, right? The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad or stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. So there's a, there's a tie-in here with the rest of our spiritual aspects, that, that how we use our money, how, how tight we're holding to our money, or how loosely we're holding to it, will ultimately impact a lot of other areas for us spiritually. We look for opportunities to give. We look for opportunities to share. We can't serve two masters. Where are we investing our time? Where are we investing our money? Where are we investing our energy and our resources? Are we known as generous people? Are we known as generous people? He even took us to the book of Esther where he talked about um, there's times that God puts us in situations for specific opportunities, right? Just like Esther was placed in a situation and Mordecai says, have you been placed here for such a time as this to bring salvation to Israel, to be that channel to, to save your people? He talked about whether God has blessed us in certain ways to be a blessing to others, right? And so what I do wanna challenge you with here is, you know, we've highlighted and talked about, man, totally blown away by our continued giving during this season of COVID here at our church, right? Like, and Ben and I have talked about, like, man, I hope his numbers are right, you know, that he hasn't made some type of error, added a zero somewhere. He even texted me one time after he posted the update, and everybody was like, wow, this is awesome, praise the Lord. He was like, man, I hope my numbers are right, you know? Um, But we also know that that doesn't mean that every single person in this church is living that that out faithfully, right? The aspects of giving generously. That can certainly be skewed by a handful of people really seeking to give during this time, and then that be applied to our church as a whole, right? I don't know who gives and who doesn't give. But what I would want to challenge you with is to just pause, stop, and think for a second. In all this talk about generosity and giving during this unprecedented season, are you as an individual a part of that? Have you found creative ways to hold loosely to your stuff, to your money, to your finances? Have you been willing to give to those in need? Right? How is our money being used to help those in need? Well, think about how our budget is built, right? The more you give, the more goes out, right? We don't stockpile it, we give it. So people like Snowbird, where, where they have been impacted financially, right? Where they lost revenue this summer because of campers not being able to come. Missionaries, right? Stephen and Jenny. Missions giving, not necessarily being up in every church, right? We're able to give to them to potentially help offset loss that they may see down the road, right? With the McMurray family. And their whole support is built on individual families continuing to give, and to support them, right? And so we want to be individuals who during a time where it doesn't make sense to give, we're finding ways to give. And then last week we saw from Marcus the ending of chapter six about our anxiety and how to handle our anxiety. It says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
That's twice now that he's referenced how Gentiles do things and how we should do things, right? Gentiles love people that love them. Gentiles treat people good that treat them good. Gentiles worry about the mundane daily things of life, right? And he says we should be different. We should live differently. Um, sorry. Marcus talked about the, the kind of the, an understanding definition of anxiety. Anxiety is fruit of misplaced treasure and worship that is fought through warfare and renewal of our mind. Jesus talks about here how life is more than the things of this world. Instead, he tells us to trust our master for these things. Right? He says, I, I don't want you consumed with figuring out how to feed yourself and how to clothe yourself. He says, I want you to elevate your concern level to something far more eternal, right? I want you figuring out how to be salt and light and how to love your enemies and how to be generous and how to be loving and serving to those in need versus trying to figure out what you're going to wear and how you're going to feed. He says, I want, you to, I want you to trust me with those things, right? Trust me with those things. I'm going to take care of those things so that you can be living in a different way where you don't have to worry about this. You can be consumed and focused on this. Trust your master for these daily things Life is more, life, there's more to life than these things, right? He also talks about how worrying doesn't solve anything. You can't add to your life with worry. You can't, you can't increase your life. You can't make your life better through worry. It's a, it's a dead-end road there. Ma- our master takes care of us each day, takes care of the worries of each day, right? Marcus did a great job of talking about the lesser to greater argument. If, if God's going to take care of these lesser aspects of creation— Right? The lilies of the field, the animals, things that, that don't possess the same value as an image bearer of God. How much more is he going to take care of the image bearer? We're the greater part of his creation. He cares for the lesser. How much more is he going to care for the greater? And then Marcus talked about how we have to attack this. We have to attack our anxieties. We have to attack it with truth. Right? We have to attack it with truth. And so he even looked at what... Um, Philippians chapter 4 has to say, which is our D group passage for this month, right? So the application for this would be twofold. Am I feeding my anxieties with truth, right? And you can go back and look at the notes that Marcus had because he listed off some great truths for us to regularly fill our minds with. And he even, again, referenced today how we want to see as we mature in Christ, the, the, the time gap shrinks for us to turn to God and trust him in those truths, right? Am I trusting or am I feeding my anxieties with truth, and am I attacking them with prayer? Because that's what Paul tells us in Philippians 4, to not be worrisome or anxious about anything, but to be prayerful about everything, right? To take our anxieties, the things that we would want to worry about, and to give those to God, to cast those upon him. As we close, I want to give you two things to remember and two things to do. Two things to remember from all that I've just said today and two things to do. Number one, every day, every interaction with every person is an opportunity to be salt and light. Every day, every interaction with every person is an opportunity to be salt and light, to be gracious, pure, reliable, good, and obedient, whether others treat you the same or praise you for it. And I want that to kind of like summarize what we've said today is that every day, every interaction with every person, because he's, he's talked about our relationships with our spouse, relationships with other individuals and the purity that's needed there. He's talked about our interaction with enemies, right? Those that would seek to harm us. Every day, every interaction with every person is an opportunity to be salt and light. The rest of the day, the remainder of today, tomorrow, there are going to be opportunities to be gracious, pure, reliable, good, obedient. And you're not always going to have the same treatment given back to you. And you're not going to always be praised for doing the right thing. But we continue to be salt and light regardless. No matter how we're treated for it and no matter whether we get praised for it or not. Every day, every interaction, every person is an opportunity. And then number two, spend your time focused and invested on eternal things with intentionality, and trust God with the daily things rather than worrying. Spend your time focused and invested on eternal things with intentionality 
and trust God with the daily things rather than worrying. So Marcus had tied his sermon back into Tyson's, right? So Tyson's talking about earthly things and eternal things. Where's my heart? Where's my treasure? Where's my focus? Marcus's sermon comes in and shows us that if, if our focus gets off and we are focused on earthly things, I mean, we're going to get consumed with worry and anxiety about how we're going to eat and how we're going to clothe ourselves, right? And we need to be reminded that God's going to take care of all those things. We need to spend our time focused and invest on eternal things with intentionality. Think through how am I going to take advantage of every day, every interaction, every opportunity. I'll trust God with the daily things. So two points of application from these two things to remember. What are we going to do? How are we going to remember this by doing it? Okay, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Number one, I want everybody to commit to doing something this week outside your normal job description. I put job description in quotes here because not everybody has an official job description, right? But I want you to think in terms of what you think that you're supposed to do this week, like the normal expectations that are applied to you, right? Whether that's at the work or at the home or at school, wherever, no matter what age you are, you have some type of job description in your mind. This is what I'm supposed to do this week. I want you to do something outside those expectations to make one of your particular environments better this week, right? So if you're a child, if you're a kid, a student, that could be at school or that could be at home, right? How are you going to serve your mom and dad in ways that maybe aren't expected this week? How are you going to serve your classmates or your teachers in a way that's not necessarily expected, something that you weren't anticipating doing? Do something outside your normal job description to make one of your particular environments better this week. Be salt this week. But be intentional when you choose what you're going to do and try to do it towards someone who doesn't deserve it. So for your kids, your parents do deserve it. Right? So you need to think of somebody else, probably. Maybe one of your siblings. Right? They probably don't deserve it. Right? And they're probably going to mistreat you when you do something good for them. Right? They're not going to give you any credit for it. And that's exactly what we're looking for. Right? Like we're looking for something where you might get mistreated for it. You're certainly not going to get praise for it. Right? So I want you to think of something outside your normal job description to do this week to make your particular environment better and look for a way that it'll serve somebody who doesn't deserve it and attempt to do it in a way that will lead to minimal praise for yourself. All right, that goes with every day, every interaction, every person is an opportunity to be salt and light. And number two, tied into how do we spend time focused and invested on eternal things with intentionality, trust God with the daily things. And I want you to make specific, intentional plans to participate in D group and C group in the upcoming weeks and months as a way of reflecting where your treasure and your heart are. And if there's one, where, if there's one area that we still need to grow in as a church in regards to what it looks like to come back, right, and rebuild the temple and get back to normal spiritual life, it's in the area of our small groups. Because there for a while, like, we had to kind of leave it as, hey, come if you can. If you can't come, totally understandable. We're just going to kind of hang out in fellowship. We don't want to put any pressure on you because there's still this aspect of us working out what it looks like to come back together and gather. But I feel like we're at the point now where we need to reapply the the importance of this a little bit more, right? And, and, And remind you that we want you invested not just on Sundays, We want you invested in meaningful ways in the lives of people in this church. And one of the ways that we do that is through our small groups. Now, here's where I'm going to be hesitant to say like, hey, if you're not doing this, there's a problem, right? Because I'm not going to add to scripture. There's nothing in scripture that says, hey, you have to be a part of the way Sovereign Hope does stuff, right? But I do want you to understand that, man, there there is such fruit that comes from us gathering in intentional ways like this, particularly when it's around God's word, one, so that we can grow individually, but two, so that we can help others grow as well. I want to read to you from Philippians 4, verse 1, which is our D group passage. I want you to hear Paul's heart here for his people. He says, 
Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This isn't their pastor. This isn't their elder. Right? Paul doesn't even live with these people. Right? He's gone. But he says, I, I love you. I long for you. I desire your spiritual maturity. Right? To know that you're standing firm and to be a part of that standing firm, that's my joy and my crown. And I know our schedules get busy and our calendars get full, and that's why I attach the intentionality piece to, if we're going to invest in eternal things, there's an intentionality piece to it. Because we can always find great excuses for why we can't be at certain things. But with a little bit of intentionality, we can create and carve out opportunities that says, you know what? What I was going to do that night that was going to keep me from being a part of that, I'm going to do on this night. I'm going to cancel this thing out because that's more earthly than eternal so that I can be a part of the eternal. You are needed in these environments. You're needed to help grow others in their faith towards maturity. All right? So if we're going to take what Marcus and, and, and Tyson have, have shown us through the word, and that's to treasure the eternal, not just the earthly, to treasure the eternal, right? to put our worship properly there, to, to, to not be anxious about the earthly things that would detract us from the eternal, to be intentional with the eternal, I think one way we can see that is our intentionality in gathering to invest in each other. So let me challenge you and encourage you with these two application points today. Do something outside your normal job description this week to serve somebody. To serve somebody in a way that they don't deserve it and you're not going to get praise for it. Number two, make specific intentional plans to gather for D group and C group this month and in the coming months because maybe it's too late to carve it out this month. We're finishing up Philippians, then we're looking to go into the book of James. Right? We want you there to study with us if possible. If physically possible, we want you there to be a part of that so that you can help us grow and so that we can help encourage you in your faith too. I hope that we can create an environment where we love each other, long for each other, to where it is our joy and crown to see each other growing and standing firm in our faith. We're going to turn our attention uh, now in closing to partaking of the Lord's Supper. Hopefully you were able to pick up one of our prepackaged uh, juices and breads on the way in. Again, not the ideal way of doing it, um, but one of the concessions we're making uh, to make sure that we're loving each other and caring for each other during these challenging health times. One of the reasons that this is the other piece of what we do for Application Sunday, so it should have been a time of great breakfast and fellowship earlier. We didn't get to do that. We did get to do the part where we remind ourselves of what we've been learning with some specific application for how do we do that right now, not just hear it, but do it. And then our third piece of application Sunday is to partake of the Lord's Supper. We do it on this day because this day is such a a day devoted to being doers of the word and expressing our faith, right? And so we believe that the Lord's Supper is a way that we practically do that collectively as a church. That's to publicly express, not through baptism, which we believe is a one-time thing, but through the Lord's Supper, an ongoing expression that we are choosing Jesus, just like the Beatitudes talk about, right? That he is our source of righteousness. It's his work, not our own, that we boast in. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about partaking of the Lord's Supper. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 11. It says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here at Sovereign Hope, we believe that partaking of the Lord's Supper is not a means of salvation. It's an expression of our salvation, right? The, the juice and the bread is not Jesus' literal blood or body, right? Amazon didn't ship that to us, right? Um, they shipped us a representation of that, right? And so when we eat and drink of this, what we are expressing is that we believe that Jesus' body, his work is sufficient for us, right? It's his work, it's his righteousness that saves us. And then by drinking of the juice, we're saying that it's his blood that was shed that cleanses us from our sins, 
All right, so we need the cleansing and the righteousness to be saved. We need to be forgiven of the wrong, and then we need the right to make us acceptable before God, and Jesus does both. And so the juice and the bread Jesus gave to his disciples is a picture of that and told them to partake of it until he comes back. And so we partake of it today because we believe he hasn't come back yet, right? But we long for it and we look forward to it. And so I'm going to invite you to partake. Whether you're a member of our church or not, we invite you to partake because you're worshiping with us today. And so our believers are invited to take. I'm going to pray for us. You're going to have some time to privately pray and worship. Tyson's going to lead us in song. And as you feel led, you can partake in your seat. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the reminders that we've seen. We thank you for the clear application that we can live out this week. I pray that we would seek to do that. Lord, help us to find ways to serve those that, from our perspective, maybe don't deserve it. Um, God, help us to, to do good to those people, whether they return good to us or not. And God, I pray that we would do it in such a way where we don't receive any praise for it. And God, I pray that we would be intentional not just to grow ourselves, but to help grow others in this church too. And so as we look towards our calendars, God, give us intentionality to study Philippians chapter four, not just for our own growth, but so that we can teach it to others, explain it to others and encourage others with the truths that we see there. God, I pray that we would all be able to gather in the coming months to fellowship and to spur each other on to stand firm in our faith. God, we thank you for the opportunity to partake of this Lord's Supper today. We thank you for your body and your blood that was broken and shed for us. We thank you that Jesus came to save us because if left to ourselves, we could never do it on our own. We thank you that Jesus is all sufficient in doing that for us. And so we celebrate Jesus today. We celebrate his life and his death and we anticipate his glorious coming. God, keep us faithful until he does come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.